looking at things in risk-adjusted terms means you can compare across instruments and also across time, because risk also varies across time, of course. And that means you can do things like pulling together things and standardizing things and making them all kind of look the same, because my general principle is that I should be able to use the same kind of signal for every single market. And obviously, I can't do that if the signals mean different things for different markets at different times. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Louis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Welcome to the Market Call Show. Today, I'm really excited to have Rob Carver. I've been really waiting to have Rob on because I started reading Rob's books about, I want to say about six years ago, and I thought they were extremely practical and extremely helpful. Even though I'd been in the quant world and in portfolio management world for quite some time, I found his work to be extremely refreshing and not canned like a lot of the things that you see with technical books and things like that. So I really am looking forward to this interview. Rob is an interesting gentleman. He has been an independent systematic futures trader for a while, but before that, he worked for a company called AHL, which is a large systematic hedge fund, and they were part of the man group. He was responsible for macro trading and developing fundamental global macro strategy, and he's been involved with derivatives at Barclays. It's very interesting. He has an economics degree, and it's interesting looking at his degree and then seeing how he does his work now, at least to what my understanding is now. I could see a big difference in his degree versus what he does, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. He's got a new book that's going to be coming out, Advanced Futures Trading Strategies, which I'm looking forward to reading. I would say he also is the author of Systematic Trading and Smarter Portfolios. So, Rob, thanks for coming and talking to me. You're very welcome. It's great to be here, Lewis. Thank you. The first thing I wanted to ask you was a little bit about your background, because I noticed that a lot of people that get into this quant world, a lot of times they start off being more of a qualitative type investor, where they're thinking about fundamentals, how to break things down that way and making decisions that way. Did you have like some point in your career where you started off being more of a qualitative oriented believer, if you will, and moved more towards systematic trading? Yeah, I suppose in a way, I brought my first stock in 1999. And without being rude, Lewis, I think you're old enough to remember what was going on back then. It was the <laughs> tech bubble. I think if ever there was a time when fundamentals were irrelevant, that was probably it. And maybe we've seen a repeat of that quite recently. Who knows? But yeah, so back then I was literally just buying stuff because I thought everybody else would. The classic greater fool theory, which in that market was probably exactly the right thing to be doing. Definitely. And then I did learn about fundamental analysis and, and so on. When I started trading professionally, which was... Ooh, Crikey, 20 years ago now, it's terrifying. I was trading in an investment bank and although the trading I was doing was quantitative in the sense that we were trading things that you required a fair bit of mathematics to price, in terms of the actual trading process, it was entirely based on, I wanna say, non-systematic kind of discretionary calls in a sense. So we were using maths to price the things, but to actually decide whether to buy or sell or hedge and so on and so forth was very much down to gut feeling. So it wasn't really until I started working for AHL, which was in, in 2006, that I kind of really got into trading systematically, although I did actually intern with them a few years before that. But the interesting thing is if I look at my own personal portfolio and the way I trade my own stocks, 
even while I was at AHL, I was actually still trading in a very kind of, well, just to call it fundamental would almost be too nice. It was it was very, very much like, well, this looks good, but there are some accounting ratios that make sense. So I was I was very much not practicing what I preach on my personal portfolio in terms of, it, you know, my, my day. to do that. <laughs> well, exactly. It's like during my day job, I was, it was all systematic, all computerized, all very quantitative. But yeah, my own personal portfolio was just this mess of things that looked good at the time. And it wasn't really until I effectively retired from trading other people's money, if you like, in 2014, I want to say, or 2013. That time is flying too fast for me. But I actually really kind of, even in my personal portfolio, started trading everything systematically. So stocks, futures, the whole lot. And now my discretionary trading calls are very few and far between. It's really interesting. It seems like when people trade their own money, we have this itch to easily fall into that non-discretionary, let's make an exception because I know this single piece of information. And I think a lot of people have a struggle to go from the various phases of going fully systematic. And in fact, I know very few people that truly do that very fully systematic. In the futures world, there tends to be more of them, but it's kind of refreshing to talk about that because one of the things that you've talked about in your books is, and you really go through a lot of different types of philosophies, you know, general ways that you could approach things and you break things down like by the asset allocator investor, which is, I think, what most Wall Street really is. It's mostly asset allocate. Most retail accounts are asset allocation based long only. But you break that down a little bit more. Then you also talk about like a semi-automatic, which is kind of a discretionary trader with guardrails who just maybe uses risk management rules and other position sizing rules to help them kind of stay. Maybe they use their signal strength, if you will, by discretion, and the rest is hopefully guardrailed. And then you've got this kind of staunch trader who's systematic. Which method do you find to be most profitable on a risk-adjusted basis for people? I know that's a tough question and it's very subjective, but when would you recommend one method over another for somebody, I guess? I mean, those are actually two separate questions, Lewis, really. I suppose as a quant, I would say empirically, I can look at history and say that actually people who trade actively generally will make more money than people that don't, assuming that they're doing it properly. Otherwise, why bother, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you can't make money trading actively, basically, if you don't think you can predict risk-adjusted returns, then don't bother. Hold a diversified portfolio with as many different independent streams of return as you can and just hang on to that. I find it harder to kind of answer the, is it better to be the kind of semi-automatic or the fully automatic trader? Because obviously, it depends on what skills and abilities and experience you have. So some people say, oh, well, systematic trading is definitely the best no question, no human traders can beat computers. And of course, there are very narrow domains where that's true, like high frequency trading, where clearly a human being can't compete just because of the speeds involved. But I'm not so kind of ideological about it. I do think there are people out there who are definitely better traders than I am, better non-discretionary qualitative traders, and are definitely better traders than you know almost any kind of computer model you could care to put together. So you're talking about recommending to people, and most people are not in that category. Most people are not as good at trading as they think they are. One of the things I like to do is say to people, okay, assume the best thing to do is assume that nothing, assume that, that you aren't very good at this, and then trade in such a way that reflects that. And a good example of that would be in, in determining how much leverage you should trade with. The better you are at trading, the higher the leverage you can basically use. But of course, that has obvious dangers. If you're not as good as you think you are, then you're going to blow up very quickly if you're using too much leverage. It's much better to be really conservative and assume, you know what, 
I'm only going to make a certain amount of money per year, a certain amount of alpha per year. So in terms of picking between these three models, the way I like to think of them is, okay, you've got one camp of people who say, you know, I can't predict the market and nobody else can predict the market. I'm just going to go along only. I'm just going to have a bunch of diversified assets in my portfolio. Then you've got people who think that they've got skill, in which case I love that expression guardrails. I wish I'd used it in my book, but I didn't, sadly, maybe second edition. But yeah, the idea is that the guardrails, as you put them, stop you from doing anything too crazy or too stupid. And the other nice thing about that is if you are kind of operating in that kind of semi-automated way and you're good at recording what you're doing, uh, you can actually then work out whether you are really good at this, whether you really are adding value by looking at the returns you're generating in a sort of statistical way. And in my third book, which I am sorry to say you failed to mention, which is leverage trading. Anyway, oh, uh, my, yes, that's <laughs> OK. I'll, I forgive you. I forgive you. <laughs> in my third book, I include like methods for doing that, for example. And then you've got people who are basically purely systematic traders. So I would say mostly those are people who don't really think they've got the skill to be semi-automatic traders or completely discretionary traders. And I know for one, I'm not in that category. There's no way I could make a living as a discretionary trader. I'm not good enough. And I think actually most people are better off with either the, okay, let's just assume we can't predict the future and be correlated investors, 60, 40, whatever. Or let's assume that, yes, it's possible to improve upon that by doing some trading. But you know what? I personally can't improve upon relatively simple models, so I'm going to stick with that. So it does come down. Obviously, there are costs and benefits to either of those two binary approaches. So trading involves more work, involves more potentially more skills. You need to, be, if you're fully automated, you need to have computer skills and so on and so forth. Yes. Buy and hold investing done well is fairly easy. And so if I, for example, had to run my models manually, there's absolutely no way I would be a trader. I'm way too lazy for that. <laughs> a lot of work. Exactly, exactly. So it does come down to your skills, the time you're willing to devote to it, and how well you think it's possible to predict the future. I think a lot of discretionary traders don't have a good risk management and diversifying set of rules, and that hurts them. It almost feels like it boils down to how good is your signal strength <laughs> if you do it on your own versus if you just do some trend following and mean reversion or something like that. Something. One of the things that a lot of people in this business know is that your ability to predict return is a lot less reliable than your ability to estimate risks or volatilities in the future. So I kind of want to dive a little bit into that whole concept of signal strength. Well, I think the first thing that got me was when I read Systematic Trader, it reminded me of mean variance optimization, but it was practical. And it wasn't like filled with a bunch of flaws that are involved with MPT. I thought that was really brilliant. And I've seen it done in different ways, but not quite like this before. So I thought it was pretty unique. And it's actually in the title of the book, A Unique Method. I think it is pretty unique. <laughs> Anyhow, the concept of signal strength, that's one component of the three basic things that you have in that system, I would say. When you think about the fact that you can't really predict very well, and there's a lot of problems, I think, which is how are you going to put together? How are you going to think about your signal strength in your way of trading? When you put together your signal strength model, if you will, how are you going about that? Like, how are you testing that? Let me back up just a little bit. So in the academic world, they typically will say in equities in particular, they'll say, okay, let's run this factor. Let's run all these different buckets. And then we're going to correlate those factors to the returns over various time frames, And we're going to have P values. We're going to do that. And then we're going to build this model. You, you don't do that, right? Or do you? Not explicitly. I mean, the classic academic equity work, as you know, involves usually ranking 
portfolio sorts and then taking like the top and the bottom so maybe then you bucket into say groups of five and then you go along the top bucket and you go short of the bottom bucket so that's actually effectively a way of mapping from signal strength to position size effectively it's quite a want to say crude because it sounds rude <laughs> but it, it's it's <laughs> kind of like it, it's very non-linear mapping because you're only first of all a third of the universe you don't trade at all right the middle third of stocks you don't trade you're basically saying my signal in that middle third of stocks is not strong enough to work to make it them worthy of a position okay and then what you do in the top and the bottom is you then hold a portfolio long and short Normally, well, in the original kind of academic literature, you know, like farmer and French, of course, I know you're familiar with, it was equal cash weighted. The more sophisticated way to do it, of course, is to do equal risk weighted. But basically, you think, you say, well, all of those stocks in, say, the top fifth are all equally good, and all the stocks in the bottom fifth are all equally bad. So I'm going to go, you know, long all of those guys and short all of those guys. So what I do is not dissimilar from that, but it's more linear in the sense that what I will do is say, well, okay, I've got some signal and the way I do things is to make all my signals proportional to risk adjusted returns. And that means that I can compare them across time and across instruments. So for example, if I was to do my forecasting in return space and say, well, I think this thing is going to go up by 3% a year. Okay, well, what is it? What is it that's going up by 3% a year? Is it Bitcoin? In which case 3% a year is a very, very weak forecast because the standard deviation of Bitcoin is like 100% a year. Or is it like, I don't know, um, two-year treasuries where 3% a year would actually be quite a big return because with a duration of two-year treasuries, that means that interest rates would be moving by like 2%, which is even nowadays is a pretty big move, right? Looking at things in risk-adjusted terms means you can compare across instruments and also across time because risk also varies across time, of course. And that means you can do things like pulling together things and standardizing things and making them all kind of look the same because my general principle is that I should be able to use the same kind of signal for every single market. And obviously, I can't do that if the signals mean different things for different markets at different times. But then, so I end up with a number effectively. And the easiest way to think about this is it's a number on a line between minus 20 and plus 20. You can take any value in that, in that range. And then what I do is I scale my position linearly to that. So if that forecast is zero, I have no position on. If it's plus 10, I have a kind of modest long position on. If it's plus 20, I have my maximum long on and the same with negative numbers on the short side. So that, again, is a way of mapping from signal strength to position size. Obviously, it's quite different in that, for example, something with a very weak signal in the kind of standard equity factor literature would have no position on. Whereas for me, I'd have a position on, but a small one. Similarly, you know, the very best stock and the stock that just falls inside the top quintile in the equity factor world would both have the same position on. But for me, the thing that had the highest signal would have a bigger position on than the thing that, that was equivalent to that, if you like. So something that had a kind of moderately big signal, but not the maximum. So it's important to not just do this kind of and just assume that it works. So one thing I do is I actually do effectively like a scatter plot of the signal versus the risk adjusted return. And what I'm looking for is, does this linear mapping that I'm using make sense? Or would something like an equity mapping make more sense? In other words, you don't do anything until the signal gets quite extreme and then you go long and short. So it's not that different in the sense that big things that have big positive signals in both worlds, you go really long and vice versa for big shorts. But in the middle, things are different. Do you have various timeframes of perspective forward-looking returns that you evaluate or do you tend to? Yeah, so this is actually a kind of interesting question because one thing you could do, of course, is to say, 
I'm going to use different signals depending on what time frame I'm predicting at. But the thing that I basically do effectively is to say, well, for a given instrument, I look at its trading costs and I say, well, given the trading costs, what would be a kind of reasonable length of time to hold that instrument? So in futures world, for example, take, I don't know, NASDAQ. NASDAQ futures are incredibly cheap to trade because they have very tight bid ask and because they, they're very volatile. That's something I would be prepared to trade faster. So when doing this exercise, I would look at a shorter horizon. Whereas for something like, I don't know, euro dollar futures, and I'm talking about the interest rate future, not the currency here, they're quite low volatility and therefore quite high cost to trade. And for those that have a much longer holding period. So it's very much dependent on exactly what I'm trading. Yeah, I mean, in equities, one of the main differences between futures and equities, in equities, you can treat a lot of stuff as basically the same. Because, you know, if you're trading the S&P 500, in terms of liquidity, costs, standard deviation, there's not really a huge amount of variability there. And, you know, like the correlation structure of the S&P 500 is fairly nice in the sense that it's not weird. But in futures, none of that's true. Things have got very different risk and very different costs. And the, the correlation structure might be a bit weird too, because, for example, last time I checked, there was something like 500 futures in the whole world you could trade, excluding single stocks, which are another probably another 2,000 on top. But of that 500, about half actually are equity indices. So if you were to just have a portfolio of all of those, then you'd have to be heavily weighted towards equities. Mm. So that's something you need to consider, which we're in the S&P, that's less of a problem. Yeah, we will have some questions on that portfolio construction part here, or the universe construction. One of the things I like about the continuous, you call it continuous, which makes sense. It's a continuous signal strength. It's got a lot of advantages. One is you can have a target allocation at any point in time, which is really helpful for us because which we've been doing anyhow, but it makes it easier to have a target versus actual type of a, a look at any time. So it's not as it's not discrete. So you just have a signal and you're sitting around wasting capital waiting for a signal and it allows your, your accounts across separate accounts to have better return clustering so that you're not they track performance better together. Don't have to wait for the signal. The other thing I like about it is that it creates really the ability for you to have less dispersion in general. But there's a ton of challenges, though, with it as well, especially if you're combining futures contracts with equities. With equities, your signal, the, the size of one share is not very big, so you can really continuously easily move. The costs are, may or may not be that bad, depending on what stocks you're trading. But with futures, it's, it still has an element of discreteness when you're dealing with smaller accounts. I mean, you have to have pretty big accounts for it to not have an element of being discreet, so you can have more variance there. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions, or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. What is your philosophy about how you rebalance or how do you analyze the variance or your tolerance bands, if you will, between actual versus target and when you actually decide, I'm going to go ahead and bring that to its contract? Is it a daily thing or is it, or do you have some other kind of a way of thinking that you like to? The way I used to do things, which is accurately reflected in my third book, actually, and in most of my fourth book, for what it's worth, <laughs> the way I used to do things was, was effectively to ignore this problem. And to say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to trade anything unless I can hold at least on average two contracts. And because of the way my system works, that means that on ma the maximum I have would be four contracts, basically. So I wouldn't hold something where I'd only ever get a single contract at maximum signal strength, for example. I'd never hold anything like that. And the reason is exactly what you say, because effectively you're wasting capital. 
because you know the capital allocator that instrument you're not going to be using efficiently most of the time so that means my actual trading for a lot of instruments because i don't have a you know i used to have a very large trading account working <laughs> for a big quant hedge fund i mean we're talking about billions of dollars here hundreds of thousands of contracts but you know my account now is much smaller sadly <laughs> but although it's for a retail account it's probably above average but my kind of signal mapping instead of looking nice and continuous was effectively like a staircase <laughs> with effectively like eight steps going from minus four to plus four contracts except for things where the ticket size was, was relatively small so the way i used to do it was if it was to say well, well given this constraint what is the best set of instruments and my account that i can hold so i had a process whereby i selected let's say there's a hundred i said mentioned the figure of 400 futures earlier let's say there's a hundred and let's say there's 200 that are liquid enough to trade as a figure and let's say that with my account size i could trade 30 of those without running into this minimum capital issue or then i basically had a systematic process where i chose 30 instruments and then once i chose them i then trade those 30 instruments as if i did not have a position rounding problem and then right at the end of my code there's a line that says round brackets position close brackets and then my <laughs> trades were based on that rounded position. That was the way I used to do stuff until literally like six, seven, eight months ago. And I spent, this for me is the biggest problem with trading futures as a smaller trader, this issue mm -hmm. of account size. I agree. It's the main reason why I probably could never hope to achieve the performance of a $3 billion or a $10 billion CTA quantity trading advisor. Just It's not because they've got 100 people working in their front office who've all got PhDs which means they've got 100 more PhDs than in this office, because I haven't got one. I know it's not that. It's not their access to, to weird forms of alternative data or any of this stuff. The main distinction is the fact they can trade 150, 200, 250 futures, plus probably some OTC stuff, and I can only trade 30. They can scale in smaller increments. Exactly. And that means that they can diversify, because diversification is the only free lunch in finance. It's a cliche, but it's completely true, especially mm -hmm. with the kinds of models that I trade. So that means I could only trade 30 instruments instead of 200. So I was missing out on a lot of potential diversification. Mm -hmm. So the solution I came up with is much closer to the process you described just now, where effectively, yeah, every day I now normally trade 146 futures contracts. And every day I produce effectively a set of positions that assume that rounding is not an issue. So I'll have, you know, I'll 0 0.03 of this guy and minus 0 0.6 of this guy and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And because I'm trading quite slowly, it's okay to do this every day. So every day, then what I do is an optimization whereby I say, okay, you cannot hold minus 0.3 of this guy and 0.6 of this guy. You can only hold minus one or plus one. What is the best set of integer positions that you can hold that gives you the minimum tracking error to the unrounded portfolio? And then basically there's some stuff in there involving cost penalties and this is the buffer zone. In other words, if the tracking error is below a certain level, I don't bother doing anything. But if the tracking error exceeds the level appropriate level, it will say, okay, yeah, you should now move to the optimal, well, not the optimal portfolio because that's unrounded, but the portfolio that is optimal given you have this integer constraint. You have alternative instruments to fill gaps of larger contracts than to, I think, I heard you say one time in an interview, I believe on top traders or something like that. Is that true? So that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, that's implicit, right? So it's not explicit. So for example, so what I do is where there are two contracts that are exactly the same and it's just a multiplier issue. So like the E-mini and the micro S&P, for example, and there used to be an even bigger S&P contract, but until whatever, 18 months ago, I don't trade both of those because that really is a bit silly. And also, mm -hmm. obviously, then I've got a correlation of 100%, which can cause problems in various places. So I pick just one of those. 
Well, let's suppose that there was a micro Bitcoin future, but no micro Ethereum future, or the micro Ethereum future wasn't liquid enough. I think that's actually the case. I think the micro Ethereum for me is too is not liquid enough to trade. That means that let's suppose I want to have a really big long in Ethereum, but I have no opinion on Bitcoin. I mean, this is obviously a contrived example because it's unlikely you've ever been in that situation. But let's suppose that's the case. Then what the, the system would implicitly do, it's not explicit, would implicitly do is, okay, how can I get a good a match as possible to this big Ethereum position, which I can't actually hold because I just don't have the, I've got the integer rounding issue. I'll say, well, okay, actually, it turns out that buying three micro Bitcoins is a very good match for this because the correlation is like 98%. Mm-hmm. So that's implicitly the kind of thing that's going on in there. Yeah, it's like a um, surrogate, like a surrogate instrument for that, that is a smaller size. Exactly, but as I said, it's not explicit. I'm not. It's, it's not, not a kind explicit. of if if I want to hold Ethereum instead, hold this many micro Bitcoin. That's just naturally what happens as a process of the optimization. Got it. All right. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense. So, okay. Well, if that's the case, so for many people, there's a lot of people out there that trade futures in many different ways. They want to get into like trend following or something like that. What is the minimum number of instruments they really should have to have? diversification and what's what kind of size would that in today's contract size world roughly would you say that would be assuming like 15 20 percent vol targeting (laughs) (laughs) i mean no 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 it's it's a very fair question and i'm trying to remember if i've actually done this analysis recently enough to give you a worthwhile answer so without getting quanti i'd say you know what personally i'd like to have one from every major asset class as a minimum so i'd want to have like one equity index one bond one agricultural one metal one energy probably volatility because that's different from equities wouldn't necessarily bother with crypto crypto futures are very highly correlated with metals so i tend to put them in that category so you'd end up with like six or seven of these things maybe maybe eight possibly depending on what you classify as an asset class and then within each of those you want to be choosing the thing that meets certain criteria so liquidity costs and then you would basically go for the thing that had the best minimum capital the lowest minimum capital so you could actually avoid having this issue. If you're trading in the old school way, we're not doing this, this complex dynamic optimization. So you are actually having to hold enough capital for each of those positions on any given day. You're probably looking at a $150,000, I would imagine off the top of my head, I'd have to, to check that, but I would be surprised if it was a lot less than a hundred. In the book I'm writing now, I say, look, don't bother trading futures unless you've got at least a hundred thousand dollars because you're just not going to get the diversification. With a dynamic optimization, you can actually push it a little lower. I mean, in theory, you could run the dynamic optimization. You could just run it with $10,000 and see what happens. It would be, <laughs> it would be a bit of a, 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 very, a very strange portfolio because you'd probably be only holding like one contract in one instrument on any given day. And it would be like, obviously, things with very small tick sizes. And the key metric for me is I look at the correlation between the portfolio with rounding and the portfolio without rounding with my account size, which I can tell you it's public knowledge is is $500,000. The correlation is like 0.998, which as correlations go is pretty high. Yeah. Going below, like going down to like $50,000, which I think is the lowest I've run it, the correlation is dropping to like like 0.85, which is still pretty good. But you know what? At some point, I think you probably have to say, am I better if I want access to trend following? Is it really, is this the best way to do it? It depends on your motivations for doing it, right? I mean, if, if you just want to, to trade and be interested in it, then yeah, okay, fine. You're $100,000, buy a few futures, go for it. But you're never going to do as well probably as if you took that money and invested it in a trend following fund, even when you think about the costs that would be on top of that, because 
probably turning, you know, the difference between $100,000 in futures individually and $100,000 in a fund, the extra diversification the fund's got is going to probably outweigh the cost. Probably, yeah. who knows, but probably. Yeah. I think that's actually a real practical issue that a lot of investors have, especially now in the 60-40 vulnerable environment, if you will, which we'll get to a little bit more later. But that makes a lot of sense. I think I covered what I wanted to talk about with your signal strength concept, which I think is really helpful as a way to think about things. So I want to move a little bit into volatility scaling. I'm kind of working through your systematic trading at a high level. One of the things that is interesting about forecasting volatility in your sizing is that if you have a shorter time frame, you have more variability in your forecast, which changes things up quite a bit. A longer term is more stable, but maybe not as relevant. How do you think about your time frame or your methodology for forecasting volatility for your scalers? So one kind of open question is whether you should change your volatility forecasting time frame according to your kind of overall forecasting time frame. So another, let, yeah, put it this way. Let's say you've got a holding period of three days. You're comparing yourself to someone with a holding period of three months. Should the two of you be using different periods of time to estimate your volatility? Because you would think that that would be the case, right? You'd think mm -hmm. that the person who's got a holding period of three days would be using a much faster changing and up-to-date estimate of volatility than the other person would be. But, in, but surprisingly, the empirical data doesn't support this intuition at all. So what I actually do is say, well, okay, I want to predict volatility n periods ahead, where n is anything from like one day to a year. And I want to look back n periods where n is anything from, well, you can't, if you've got daily closing prices, you need a, mathematically at least three of those to estimate a standard deviation, two for a mean and a third for standard deviation. So, but let's say you've got from n equals five, again, back to a year. So you're basically looking back a certain amount of time and you're looking at a certain amount of time. Intuitively, you'd expect, well, yeah, for maybe looking ahead five days, you'd use the last five days and so on and so forth. But really slow predictions of volatility, you'd look back a year. We don't really see that at all. In fact, there's basically a sweet spot for volatility prediction, which is roughly a month. So if you use roughly the last month of returns, you get a, a, an estimate of volatility, which is pretty good no matter what your holding period is going to be, with a couple of caveats. That month is effectively the period used by like risk metrics, for example. So the, the although they use an ex, as I they use an exponential weighted estimate. So you, you have to think about the half-life rather than the look back, but it's equivalent to about a month look back. So it's a pretty standard finding. Caveats are that I would say if you are trading at a really short time frame, then you probably want to be using more frequent data. So you want to be using hourly data. And there's, there's a class of academic models around predicting volatility and blending estimates from shorter timeframes and longer timeframes from hourly and daily data that's out there. And they show you can do a little bit better with if you use like a couple of days of hourly data on top of your daily data. That's not much value for me, but for someone who's trading much quicker than me, they could get a small improvement there. And the other thing that happens when you move out to really slow time frames is so volatility is an interesting process because it's basically sort of stationary in the short term and mean reverting in the long term. The best predictor of tomorrow's volatility is the volatility of the last month. But what you also tend to find is that if volatility is really low, then it's likely to rise. And if volatility is really high, it's likely to fall. And obviously- That was going to be know. my next question. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. Do you have some constraints that you put on it? And how do you think about that, that part of the equation? 
Yeah, so again, this is somewhere where I've changed methodology. So my original methodology was exactly that, a constraint. So what I was trying to do, because obviously, because I'm volatility scaling, what does that mean in practice? It means the lower my estimate of volatility, the bigger my positions will be, the more leverage I have. And that's great, except that, you know, volatility is a nasty habit of when it's really low, it's suddenly going very high. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people criticize this idea of volatility targeting. They say, well, you're basically taking on more and more risk at a time when it's obvious that the market's going to go crazy because volatility is really low. And that's wrong in the short term, because if volatility is really low, actually, it's likely to stay low in the short term. But it's right in the long term or the medium right. term, because if volatility is really low now, then in six months, it's likely to be higher. So I used to, I did used to use constraints. So what I do would be something like, well, let's look at the distribution of volatility over the last 10 years. 10 years isn't important. It just needs to span at least one economic cycle. Because obviously, if you're using one year, then it's kind of pointless because you just, yeah. if volatility is low, you're just going to be saying, well, volatility is pretty typical now for the last 12 months. Well, yeah. And then I would say, well, if volatility is below, I can't remember the exact figure I used, but let's say if volatility was below like the fifth percentile of that distribution, then I would put a barrier there. So I wouldn't reduce my volatility estimate any lower than that. And I wouldn't therefore be scaling up an awful lot in a period of very low volatility. So for kind of intuition, if the VIX was below 10, I would be kind of be ignoring the fact the VIX had gone below 10 and assumed the VIX was still 10. I don't actually use the VIX, but that's a nice way of thinking about it. That's what I used to do. What I do now is I still kind of do that as well, but in a much more extreme way. But the main way I deal with this problem is to estimate a really slow estimate of volatility. Again, looking back about 10 years, and then I use a blend of my one month and my 10-year estimate. And the weighting between those two doesn't have to be exactly right, but I use 70-30. So 70% of my vol estimate is based on what it is now or over the last month, and 30% is based on the 10-year average. And what that will tend to do, obviously, is basically pull my volatility estimate towards the mean. So if falls really low, I'll never go that low. If falls really high, I'll never go that high. The other thing it will do is actually reduce the speed at which my volatility estimate changes which reduces trading costs, which is always a good thing. Yeah. The volatility scaling part is just as important as a signal strength, mathematically. <laughs> I mean, it's like one, th it, you know, if your volatility estimate is different, depending on how fast and how fast it moves, it's affecting the position size just as much. And as you already said, though, volatility is much more predictable than returns or risk-adjusted returns. Yes, exactly. It's also it's more, more stable. Yeah. And it's more yeah. predictable than correlation as well. So yeah, yeah. correlation is a nightmare. Okay, that really helps. I mean, there's all these sophisticated ways of thinking about estimating volatility. And I was just curious what your thinking was on that. Well, I had such a great time talking to Rob. I really wanted to split this interview up into two episodes. So stay tuned to the market call and listen in on the next episode to hear the rest of my conversation with Rob Carver. Thank you. the latest episode of the market call show make sure to like subscribe and follow us on facebook twitter and youtube go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes if you enjoy the content of this episode please leave us a five-star review and comments Information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.